you know, living life well requires that we learn to wait well. Sometimes we are waiting an impending sickness that we feel coming on, and sometimes we're waiting for the wellness to come. Or maybe we're waiting for the arrival of a baby. Kay and I are certainly waiting for the arrival of a grandson. That's the reason why I'm wearing all blue today in honor of his birthday, which we think is going to be in about three weeks. Sometimes we wait for them to leave to go to college or work, don't we? I've been there as well. Sometimes we are waiting for a job. Sometimes we're waiting for retirement. Big things or small things, we all have to wait. It's the reason why the great philosopher Dr. Seuss wrote about it. In his little book, uh, he described a waiting place. He said, waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the rain to go or the phone to ring or snow to snow or waiting around for a yes or no or waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting. And we certainly agree with that. Christians and non-Christians invariably have a lifetime of waiting. Quite literally, somebody calculated how much time we actually spend in our life waiting. And it was said that of the average person who lives their life in the West, three years will be waiting in your life, waiting in line or waiting in some way like that. We even have designated rooms for waiting. We call them waiting rooms. And when we go into those waiting rooms, for some reason, we get a little disgruntled that we actually have to wait, as if we didn't know we were going to have to wait when we entered into a waiting room. There seems to be a, a little agitation with people and waiting, especially when you wait in times that you didn't expect to wait, like an express checkout line. Nobody likes to wait in an express checkout line, or nobody likes to wait when you're in a fast food restaurant. But waiting is just an inevitable, isn't it? The disciples asked the Lord Jesus, how long will we have to wait for your coming again? How long will we have to wait for your glorious appearance, for your parousia, when you come into your glory? How long will that take? When will it be? What will be the signs? They were asking about that because they did not want to wait. And Jesus, of course, in Matthew 24 and 25, gives them some details about the waiting period what is transpiring what happens what we ought to be doing what attitude ought we to have what ministry is he inclined us to empowered us to so matthew 25 24 and 25 singles down to that anticipating the coming of the lord and waiting so let's pick up in 25 verse 31 and we'll just finish the chapter this morning the Lord says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. You know, when I'm reading passages of Scripture, multiple verses, every now and then one of them just kind of grabs at me, and this one has grabbed me today. As I was re-reading it this morning, letting it sort of marinate in my heart and my mind in anticipation for delivering the message today, verse 31 just captured my attention. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels come with Him in that glory, He will sit on His glorious throne. There's a lot of glory going around in that moment. And what an anticipation that builds in us to be able to see the Lord Jesus coming in that way. Verse 32, 
before him will be gathered all the nations so he's seated on his throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left then the king will say to those on his right come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Chapter 24 and 25 is what is called the eschatological teaching of Jesus. Eschatology, eschatos is the original word in the Bible, which means the end of time. And of course, theology is the study of, so eschatology is the study of end time. This is the distinct teaching of the Lord in Matthew 24 and 25 about that study. It's the words of Jesus himself. More detail comes later in the epistles, but this is really where Jesus is focused the majority of his eschatology and taught. In this, he gives us about five components in chapter 24 and 25 that we have been working through uh, to concentrate on, to bring our attention to that. And he's telling us how to wait in chapter 24 and 25, how to wait for his coming and what to be part of, what to be doing he says, first, wait with biblical understanding and with enduring salvation. He makes a pro proclamation. He who endures to the end will be saved. So understand these things, and he begins to, un, uh, un, um, he begins to detail for them some things that will transpire before his glorious appearance. And he says, you need to understand this, because those who don't understand it will be deceived, and many of them will wander away. This is the first thing he tells us to do in waiting. Wait with an anticipation, wait with an endurance, a perseverance, and wait with understanding. Know what's going on. Sometimes people will mention to Kay or me about uh, church life and how things have, have sort of migrated to uh, places that don't teach the gospel correctly, don't teach the word of God. They, they talk a lot about how to feel better and how to live better, but not a lot of churches are rooting themselves in the teaching of the gospel. 
I have been unapologetic in telling you that my job is to proclaim the truth. I'm going to stick with the truth and nothing but the truth. I'm not here to make our lives better. I'm here to point us to the truth, and the truth will set us free, and in that we will live better lives, both today and for eternity. But the Lord said that there would be a time, an, an approaching time of His coming, that there will be many people who will fall away. And they will no longer want to sit under the instruction of biblical teaching. And they will clamor for what they desire to be heard. And they will go to those places that don't proclaim truth. And so oftentimes people will say, does that bother you that people are not so rooted in truth anymore? That they have given up on doctrine if the doctrine doesn't make a difference in their lives? As if doctrine is a bad name? And I can tell you it bothers me. It bothers me for the people who will walk away and who will uh, act as if true biblical doctrine does not matter. But it does not surprise me. Jesus said it would be that way. There is going to be a bigger movement towards that as time goes along. The more you and I are rooting our church in truth, there will be people who will want to come to truth, but there will be a large number of people who will not want to come to truth. And here's what Jesus says right up front in chapter 24. You need to understand that. Uh, although I struggle with this, my success is not based on the number of people that come to listen to me. That's not where my success is. My success must be rooted in, did you proclaim the truth from the Bible? And leave the results to the Spirit of God. So that's the number one thing that he warns in chapter 24 is wait with understanding and recognize that many people are going to fall away. The second thing is anticipate his coming, knowing that the normality of life is going to continue. Life is just going to go on as normal. In that section of Scripture in chapter 24, he says, it's going to be like in the days of Noah. They didn't recognize that there was a judgment coming. They were just carrying on in life as normal, marrying and being married and going on with life. But judgment was pending, and so it is now. And so he says to us to live with anticipation for the coming of the Lord. Don't let the norms of life capture your attention as if God is not returning he is coming again and then he describes in chapter 25 the gathering of the saints to the Lord the groom of the the bridegroom of the the church he's going to gather those genuine people who have been followers of his uh, committed to him trans, transformed by his spirit by his word he is going to gather them but he warns that not everybody who believes that Jesus is Lord is going to be gathered to him. In fact, the haunting words of the Lord in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and following are, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, but they will not enter the kingdom of God. And then in chapter 25, the beginning of that chapter, he speaks about ten bridesmaids who all are part of the bride. They're part of the, the party. They're looking for the coming of the bridegroom but they were not prepared they did not have the oil they did not have genuine salvation or the spirit's transformation in their life so they were left on the outside they pounded on the door remember the, the narrative pounded on the door open to us and remember what the groom says from the other side depart from me i don't know you and the lord says you need to be genuine in your salvation have what is required what is required of you faith a surrender a filling of the Spirit of God in your life where you 
dethrone your heart and allow Jesus to take the rightful position of king of your life and have that genuineness of faith. And then last week we talked about the requirement of us to manage well the resources that have been entrusted to us. The Lord has gone away. He has entrusted to us all things and he is going to hold us accountable to all those resources that he's entrusted and he wants a production. He wants multiplicity to come out of that an investment. Unfaithful people will be proven to be unfaithful because they've used resources for self only and not any part for the kingdom of God and so they will be cast into hell because their life management has proved them to be disingenuous. Uh, is that a word? Disingenuous of their faith. Maybe it's a word. If not, I'm making it up today. And then today we're going to talk about the people with a transformed heart and soul and the, their identity because they genuinely love and care for those who are related to Jesus Christ. The un unregenerate and the unrepentant are left to be into eternal suffering and judgment. All right, so when Jesus comes in his glory, he will gather everyone individually from every nation and he will separate them. That's a common theme through the Gospels that when the harvest comes, there is a separation of good fruit from bad fruit. There's a separation at the net from good fish and bad fish. And in this case, in chapter 25, Jesus ends the teaching by saying the shepherd is going to divide out the sheep and the goats. And the goats are going to be on the left. It's a place of dishonor. It's a place of rejection. And the, the sheep are going to be on the right. That's the position of honor. We know that to be the case because Jesus himself sits at the right hand of God the Father. It's a position of honor. It's a position that, uh, that we would welcome. But you and I need to recognize that you only have two sides. You either have a right side or a left side. We don't have another side. There's nothing in between. And so it will be on the day of judgment. There will be a right and there will be a left. There will be a separation uh, that God makes and there won't be anything in between. If you've got it in your mind that you're somewhere in between, you're not on the right, you're not on the left, you're somewhere in between and God is going to weigh out your life and then determine what it's going to be. No, no, no. You're either on the right or you're on the left and today's decisions determine that. Today's faith determines that. Or perhaps if God is gracious, tomorrow's faith will determine that. But you don't know uh, the time in which your life is called for. So today is certainly the day of salvation. And the fate of the two groups, as Jesus has given us in the narrative, is very distinctive. They're separated from one another. There's definitive. It's either to the left or to the right. To the right, the ones who are righteous, the Lord says, come. And to those who are on his left, the unrighteous, he says, depart from me. And of course, he blesses the ones on the right and he curses the ones who are on the left. The righteous are granted eternal life and the unrighteous are subjected to eternal punishment. The righteous inherit the kingdom of God and those on the left, the unrighteous, are subjected to eternal punishment. Th these are the words of Jesus. So the Lord would desire right now for all people to come to him. He wishes that none would perish, he says, but that all would come to him. That's the Lord's desire. Today is the day in which he opens the gate and says to, to all people, come. I have made opportunity for you to come. He is the gate. Come to the gate and enter into this place of salvation. Uh, because the distinction is, is significant. You're either in or you're out. You're either to the right or to your, you're to the left. So I think what this passage is saying to us is 
declaring the genuineness of our salvation and, and knowing that that's essential, that you have genuine salvation. So salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the clear message of the gospel. That it is by God's grace, through faith, in Christ Jesus. In fact, there are multiple passages that speak to this. One of my favorites is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. It says this way, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. So the work has already been accomplished by Christ Jesus. Christ came in flesh, he lived righteously, and he accomplished righteousness. He lived every moment of his day in the perfected law of God. Everything that God demanded of mankind, Jesus Christ did to perfection, fullness. All right, he did that with intentionality so that he who knew no sin would take our sin upon himself on the cross so that we might have God's righteousness. Here's what he's doing. The righteous one takes on our unrighteousness, is nailed to the tree, the cross, and God exercises all of his wrath and justice against our sin on his own flesh. And Jesus bears the full weight of judgment and satisfies that judgment and allows that to be received by us as his gift. So his grace is evident. Our faith is that he is that one who took sin so that we might be free from it and treasure his righteousness into our account so that we might stand before God as being declared holy by Christ Jesus. All right, so all the work has already been accomplished. That ought to bring a hallelujah out of it, out of us. All the work has already been accomplished. What we need to do is receive that by faith as God's gift. All right, so where does works come in? Because chapter 25 of Matthew is talking a whole lot about works about feeding people, about giving people stuff when they're thirsty, about clothing them when they're naked, about visiting them when they're sick or in the hospital. There's a whole lot of works talked about there. So how does all this fit? Well, I like some of the direction that the epistles have brought to us because they're in the same vein that Jesus has already talked about, including in Matthew 25. Paul says this out of the NLT, Philippians chapter 2. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. So hard work that is required of Christ is work that is derived from our salvation. All right, so you're not working to salvation, you are working from salvation. All right, so Christ has accomplished all the work of righteousness and he offered that to me in 1973 as a gift. I received that by faith and from that day forward, he put me on a journey of good works out of that salvation. I didn't work towards salvation. He gave me salvation and I worked from salvation. That's the genuineness of the gospel. Are you with me on that? Have you trusted Christ in that way? That you're saved by the accomplishment of Christ through the faith that you have in him that he is God's son and that he is the provider of forgiveness of sin and the purveyor of righteousness as well 
Well, go back to that previous screen, if you will. So God is work working in you. So the work that you and I do is actually God at work in us. So I didn't work to earn the salvation, and even the works that I do in salvation are not of me. They're of God. That's a glorious thing because the onus is on him. The heaviness is on him. The load is his. The accomplishment is his. And what results come out of it belong to him. All I need to do is be faithful and submissive to his work. Use me as a vessel, Lord. Use my mouth. Use my mind. Use my hands. Use my feet. Use my resources that you've entrusted. Use me, Lord. And he will do a great work. And then James says it this way. First in verse 18 at the top. I will show you my faith by my works. I think that's a a good definitive statement for us to understand about works. I'll show you my faith by my works. All right, now catch this. In chapter 25 of Matthew, what Jesus is doing, he's saying, here's the test, here's the, the objective test to know the genuineness of salvation. And in the end, when judgment happens, he will point to faith from our works. The works will show evidence of genuine salvation or the lack of work will show the evidence of lacking genuine salvation. So James just reiterates what Christ has already said. I will show you my faith by my works. And then verse 26, he says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So if you have genuine faith, you will have genuine works of Christ the things that Christ is doing, those things you will do, the things Christ is pressing towards, you will press towards those. The people Christ is ministering to, you will minister to. But if you don't have faith, then you won't have those things. And the evidence is going to be clear in the day of judgment. So 20, chapter 25 of Matthew is making that declaration. I think somebody said it succinctly well when they said this, that works are the fruit, not the root of salvation. Our works are the fruit of salvation, not the root of it. So the root is in Christ. The life is in Christ. In fact, he goes on to say, stay connected to me. That's where the fruit comes from. Doesn't he say that? I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Stay connected to me. That's where the roots, that's where the fruit is going to come. So Christ and our faith in him is what our salvation is rooted in, and everything that we are doing is an expression of that. All right, so the genuineness of our salvation is essential. And then secondly, there's only two parts to this message. The second part is this. Genuine salvation, or lack thereof, is evident as well. Jesus wants us to recognize that. No about your salvation and the expression of your salvation is either in the works or your lack of salvation is in the lack of works. So according to Jesus, the evidence is clear regarding someone possessing genuine salvation or possessing an illegitimate faith. I say illegitimate meaning that it is not the way unto salvation. You know, the Lord said, I am the door, I'm the sheepfold gate, you come into the Father only by me. Anybody that attempts to come in another way, it's illegitimate. And they are not allowed in. Uh, a way to try to come in other than Jesus would be to try to come in to, through works. 
And Jesus says that's illegitimate. You can only come in through him. So the works show the genuineness of salvation or the illegitimate faith that one might claim to. It's a claim only rather than a transformation of their heart. Now we should be cognizant that sheep and goats are herded together. Uh, Kay and I have a vision. Well, it's mostly my vision to have goats and sheep together. She's not so interested in the goat part, but I am interested in goats and sheep together. In fact, we've got this little piece of property. I want to do all the things that you read about in Scripture. I want to have a vineyard. I want to have sheep and goats. I want to have some olive trees. I, I want to have all those things, uh, even some, some grain that will seed out in the head. I want to do all that stuff uh, because the Lord uses it over and over and over in references, and I just think that we can learn from that. Anybody interested in that? I'll sign you up. I'll give you a hoe or whatever it takes. We'll do it together. But at any rate, uh, sheep and goats are often herded together. And when it's time for the harvest, obviously they are separated. And Jesus is making a point here. All right, this is a reoccurring theme as well in the scripture. In the church, there are sheep and there are goats. Don't look around and call anybody a goat right now. But in, this, in the church, there's sheep and there are goats. There's wheat and there is weeds. There's good fruit, there's bad fruit. There's saved, there's unsaved. In the church. That's why when somebody tells you, I don't want to go to church, those people are just like me or they're, they're hypocrites. Tell them, Jesus said it would be that way. Jesus says, let them come. And in the end, he will separate them. Here's another reference of that. The reason why that's important for us to know is our doors are wide open today. The greeters and the ushers, they opened the door. They didn't check anybody before they came in asking them sinner or saint. They didn't tell the saints to come on in and the sinners to go on home. They opened the doors this morning early before the first hour and they invited people in. They welcomed them. They Hopefully they gave you a smile. They gave you a handshake. They gave you a good morning. They gave you some measure of welcome, whether you're a sinner or a saint, because that's the way it's intended to be, that the door is wide open. The gate is open. Christ is saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me. I will give you rest. This is an age of grace that God is giving us grand, luxurious opportunity for grace to be in relationship with him. But the door is not going to stay open forever. The door is going to close. The parable of the ten virgins, the door closed. And although they're pounding on it, open to us, the door did not open. In chapter 7, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. But the Lord says, depart from me, I never knew you. And here, the sheep and the goats are separated there is coming a day in the end, no matter how much you've gathered as a church, no matter how much uh, you've gathered to do good works, no matter how much money you gave to the time is now or the general offering, the time is coming where he's going to separate the goats from the sheep, those who are genuinely saved and those who are not. And Jesus is alerting us to that. So one of the main points in Matthew 24 and 25 is that there is a predetermined time in the future that the door will close 
And although he is merciful to us today, in that day there will be no mercy. It will be time of judgment. So the imperative is for us to be certain of our salvation today. Our faith in Christ who rescued us from sin and judgment and death ought to be given to him. And through the cross, our sins are forgiven. And through the resurrection, we have newness of life. We've been raised to live righteously. And certainly our confidence is in this transformational work of God by his spirit and by his word that we can be born again. And if our faith is in Christ, then we are born again. You and I can have the blessed assurance. Remember that old hymn? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. How can you have the blessed assurance of Jesus? Well, that song tells you, I am born of his spirit, washed in his blood. That's the transformation that brings somebody to the genuineness of faith and the genuine life of Christ Jesus. So our transformation is evident in our salvation and how the salvation is demonstrated. And the lack of evidence proves a lack of transformation. Is your life different? If your life is not different, then you're not transformed. And if you're not transformed, you're not regenerate. And if you're not regenerated, then you're not saved. And if you're not saved, you'll not be in the kingdom of God. If you're not in the kingdom of God, you'll be cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth in a literal place called hell. So the Lord gives us an objective criterion which we ought to measure out our life because it will be the evidence of the judgment that will come, whether you're to the right, the sheep, or to the left, departed as goats, unrighteous. And he gives us this test. He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food, and thirsty, you gave me drink, stranger, you welcomed me, naked, you clothed me, sick, and vis you visited me, in prison, you came to me. And to the unrighteous, he will say to them, I was hungry, you never gave me food. I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't welcome me. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Now, in both of those groups, the righteous and the unrighteous, they were both shocked that their lives depicted their relationship with Jesus. They both had the same response. You'd catch that? The righteous, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When do we know you to be thirsty? When do we see you without clothes? When do we see you sick or in prison and offer to minister to you? They said the same thing that those who were unregenerate said. Lord, we didn't see you hungry and thirsty and sick or needing clothing. or We didn't see you then. Both of them are shocked. You and I need to understand, and Jesus wants us to get this in his final teaching, his final message before he goes to the arrest night. Here's what he ends his teaching on your life ought to express the genuineness of salvation and if it doesn't you ought to doubt the genuineness of your salvation that's what he ends on it's a big deal isn't it the things that christ wants us to discover in the end of his teaching is the genuineness of the call to faith the genuineness of work so there's evidence in your life that you're saved or there's not evidence in your life or there's evidence in your life that you are unsaved. The passage really narrows down the criteria that Jesus shares in the day of judgment, those claiming to be Christian, those who genuinely are Christian. It's all revealed in the love and care that we have for people. But now listen, Jesus doesn't narrow it down just to people in general. He narrows it down to brothers and sisters of his. 
He says, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers. And in the original language, that's inclusive of sisters. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, so you did it to me. So the evidence of our salvation, the works of our salvation, proving the genuineness of faith that we have by the transformation of Christ in our heart is, are we pressing to those who are brothers and sisters in Christ, of Christ, who are in need? Are you pressed towards them, showing compassion to them? In our daily Bible reading, I was reminded uh, this past I think it was this past week, it might have been the week before, uh, about Saul's conversion. Maybe it was the week before. And remember, Saul was a real persecutor of the church. He was trying to stamp out Jesus and the message that Christ gave to his followers. And he was trying to do that by bringing heavy persecution upon the people of faith. And he's on his way to Damascus to do that very thing, to take people to prison. And on his way to Damascus... The Spirit of God intercepts him. Christ himself speaks to him. And remember what he says to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now wait, I thought you said he was persecuting the church. All right, catch the connection here. Jesus is linked with the church in a way that he does not view us separately. He views the church as himself so much so that he calls us his body. So all that is transpiring in his church is transpiring to him. Saul, why are you persecuting me when you're persecuting the church? And here in Matthew 25, Jesus kind of flips the tables and he says to those who are righteous, you are doing the service to those who are hungry and thirsty and in need of clothing and in need of visitation. You are doing that service to me. They're my brothers and sisters. You do it to me. And when you lack doing it, when you forego doing it, you think life is about you and all resources are for you and for your own gain and you disregard the people of God who are brothers and sisters to Jesus, you disregard them. He says it proves that you don't have my heart and you don't have my heart because the Spirit of God hasn't given you my heart and the Spirit hasn't given you my heart because you are unrepentant and you are unregenerate. You still live in the flesh and the sin and you're marked, judged. Hear, hear the way the Lord's speaking that? You say, um, well, Randy, that sounds pretty harsh. And I would say it sounds harsh, but it's grace-filled. This passage is filled with grace because you know what God is doing here? He is warning us. He's giving us the heads up. Here, here's how you determine the genuineness of your faith. And if you have genuine faith, here is how it is, ex is expressed. He's, he's allowing the church to know what... God himself is given to. People who are genuinely being transformed, it's evident in how they wait for Christ's return. In their faithfulness and in their management of resources and in the anticipation of the coming of the Lord and the moving towards people who are hurting, who are brothers and sisters to Jesus, it's evident in that. So much of what is being done in today's church life is good, but I fear the goodness is distracting us from the great call that Jesus has given to us. As the under-shepherd of the Lord Jesus Christ, the leader of this church, that's where my heart is most fearful in the right way. That we as a church do a lot of good things, but the Lord is not going to call to our attention the criteria of good things he requires of us the great things. 
and the great things are serving those who are related to him as brother and sister in Christ and pressing to them. The great things communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's going to hold us accountable to. Can I just be honest with you? I fear that our service projects placate us and distract us from what God's greater call in ministering the least of these is for the church today, the suffering brothers and sisters of Jesus who are suffering for their faith. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think that the projects are bad. In fact, I think they're good. And I'm not saying we should stop doing them. I'm saying that we should not allow the projects of good things in this world to distract us from the call and the mission of the great things of God and where God's attention is given. I fear that the hugeness of the world refugee crisis has caused us to be so overwhelmed that we think we can't make an impact, we can't make a difference, and while we are overwhelmed, our brothers and sisters of Jesus are suffering, and we as a church do little to help them. I fear that in the end, the genuineness of our faith could be called into question because we have discounted the way that we ought to help. Jesus says that you'll go to those who are in need of shelter, and you'll go to those who are hungry, and you will go to those who are thirsty, and those who are naked, those who are imprisoned and persecuted. You'll go to them. So, Meadowbrook, you and I have to figure out how not to be overwhelmed and how not to be placated with projects and to press towards the things that Jesus himself is pressing towards. The Lord's heart and his intention is on the suffering and he will bless and welcome into his kingdom those who have been along with him, waiting for his return, anticipating his return, using resources and good management for a good investment, knowing that he is going to call attention to what we did for those who are suffering. Not just anybody, but specifically his brothers and sisters, these brothers of mine, the least of these. This grace-filled passage is to say, alert! You who call yourself Christian but are only in name only, you will be separated to eternal punishment. Alert! What grace that is! Or you who have genuineness of salvation, the alert is make sure you're pressing to the works of Christ that He has empowered you to do. Work out your salvation by pressing towards those who are suffering, who are brothers and sisters of mine. I think it's grace-filled for those who are unsaved because the way that the Lord ends this message is actually over in chapter 26, the first couple of verses. I wish the chapter break wasn't right there. But here's how he ends the message. He says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. I'm looking forward to sharing with you the Passover message. Man, is it a fantastic Passover message because it's rooted in the gospel. Next week, we'll have the, the lamb and the bitter herbs and all that go with it. We'll talk about that. But he's reminding them that salvation doesn't come by works. Salvation comes in what has been shown and revealed in the Passover. That Christ came as a suffering servant, the lamb of God, to take your sins and his sins, your sins upon himself on the cross so that you wouldn't have to carry them any longer and that you could have righteousness. So Christ gave us all of that. The passage is grace-filled because it's a sober reminder to us what God is requiring of us who are saved to work out our salvation. Look at this uh, next slide here. 
Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And then another, uh, let us not grow weary in doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. All right, there's the general call to do good to all people, but now look at this specific call and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's the call of God for us, to do good, but especially those who are of the household of faith. I've given you a couple of resources in the bottom of your handout that I might ask you to look to. If you want to engage those who are suffering as brothers and sisters of Jesus, these two organizations do it well. Open Doors and Voice of the Martyrs. If, if you want to engage them, if you want to go to where those people are, if you want to give in support to our brothers and sisters of Jesus, if you want to know how to pray, if you want to get involved in some way, these two organizations can help you to do that. They'll come right alongside of our church and help us. We ought to do that individually and we ought to do that collectively because it reveals the heart of Jesus. And if it reveals the heart of Jesus, it reveals genuine salvation. So what I've come to terms with is this. You can't just live your life idly. You can't just live your life in the, in the stream of culture. You and I must live our life with the sole objective of standing before Jesus one day and giving an account of all the resources that He's entrusted to us and say, Lord, here's what you gave me and here's the extra. Here's the increase. And here's what I've done for those people that you have attended to. I went to the people that your eyes were on. I went to the people that you were moving towards. And I shared the gospel with them. And I came alongside them and helped them. And that would reveal the genuineness of my heart and your heart in faith. Won't you do that today? Let's just pray for a moment. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, you're standing before Jesus, and he's separating some to the right and some to the left the genuine to the right, the illegitimate to the left. You might claim to have been to church all the days of your life. It may be that you've done all the works that the church calls you to do. But he says, depart from me, I never knew you. You say, Randy, how would I ever have been to that place where you're making the decision today? Whether to stay where you are or to come and surrender your life taking up the cross of Jesus and following after him. Today's the day. Would you join him in the kingdom of God? Would you surrender yourself to him? Father, with every eye closed in this room, every head bowed in reverence to you, we pray that your spirit is speaking, that your word has caused a division between the thoughts of mankind in this room. And Lord, I pray that you would weigh out our heart the genuineness of our salvation now and your spirit who is the convictor of sin and righteousness and justice would reveal to us with certainty our genuineness of salvation or our lack thereof and then pour into us your truth and help us with your grace to receive it in faith in Christ alone to renounce all things except Christ crucified and our life to be lived unto him. And then let it be evident the rest of our days 
that we have been genuinely saved, transformed with a new heart, the mind of Christ. And we pray that would bring glory to Him, honor to Him, and goodness on earth. In the name of Jesus, amen. Would you stand with me?